Well, good morning again, and welcome in person or digitally to One Ancient Hope. We are in, uh, I think, week four now of this season of Epiphany. And um, this season is, again, about the revealing or the manifestation of who Jesus truly is as the Christ. So we've looked at Jesus' incarnation and what it says about who Jesus is. We've looked at his baptism, at the calling of his first disciples. And now we look at an encounter that reveals his authority. So it's this epiphany of Christ's authority. So let's do a bit of word association, right? What comes to mind for you when you hear the word authority? (laughs) Brandon, like a slap on the wrist. So maybe it's parents, teachers, government, uh, people who, you know, are levels above you. They're the authorities. Someone call the authorities, you know. Uh, I'm not sure what you think of when you think of authority. Growing up, I had a lot of trouble with authority. I was a kid of divorced parents, and I acted out quite a bit in school. I remember having to go see the principal on multiple occasions because I would joke around in class, goof off. And then in junior high, it sort of escalated. So I would oftentimes sneak out in the middle of the night with friends when they were sleeping over. And we'd go around and and do some, you know, light vandalizing, you know, TP, uh, things that wouldn't necessarily damage the homes permanently, but they were certainly a nuisance to anybody in our neighborhood. Uh, And usually I I never really got caught, so I was pretty good at it. But one day I was at home uh, playing video games after school, and there was a knock on the door, right? So I go to the door, and it's a police officer in uniform. And they say, is Matthew Tinkin home? Uh, Yes, I'm Matthew Tinkin. They proceed to say, you need to come into the, the car, the squad car, and we're going to the station. So I'm, I don't know, in eighth grade or something like that, 12, 13, and I'm driven to the police station, and they proceed to say, we have evidence of you being out past curfew, uh, damaging homes, and so you're going to be placed on house arrest for the next three months, and if we catch you out uh, past 8 p.m. or something like that, and I think it was the summer, uh, then you know you're gonna you're gonna go to jail, basically. Uh, I was terrified, right? Absolutely terrified. And of course, me as a as a young white kid, this was actually a pretty privileged experience with the police, but nonetheless, for my experience, I was terrified. Years later, uh, in college, I think, I learned that my dad had this police officer in his class in college. He was a close friend. And my dad knew I was sneaking out, but didn't think I would really listen to him saying anything. So he asked the police officer to come pick me up and take me 
to the station. They didn't have any evidence or anything at all. Um, it worked. I didn't do anything that summer, but it severely affected my relationship to any authority over me, to say the least. And honestly, probably most of us, unless we're the ones who have the authority, aren't big fans of it. We don't like when people have control or power over us. And the truth is, there's much pain and evil that's been done under the guise of authority. And the worst of all of that evil, I believe, I'm probably biased, but is when that's done under spiritual authority. When we hear stories of people being abused or misguided under pastors or priests or bishops or things of the like, um, it's heartbreaking. It's evil. Now, another word association game. We did authority. What about authenticity? What comes to mind when you hear authenticity? I love food and I love traveling. So when I, I've been to Mexico a handful of times and the first thing I do is not go to Taco Bell or Chipotle. I try and ask a local, where can I get some authentic food? Where can I get true uh, food from your region, from Yucatan, from Chihuahua, from wherever in Mexico? That would be delicious. Also, I wanted to make sure when I bought a diamond for my wife's engagement ring that I did not get uh, something that was actually cubic zirconium or a blood diamond or something like that. I wanted an authentic, ethical diamond. I wanted the real thing. And beyond this, most of us want to live lives of authenticity, right? We, we want to live lives where we're true to ourselves, None of us actually want to be hypocrites or buy knockoffs or eat inauthentic food. We're not the biggest fans of authority, but I'd venture to presume we all like authenticity. And the good news is that the authority of Jesus is actually connected to his own authenticity and to has his relationship to the divine author. So in other words, to speak with authority, the way Jesus is teaching with authority, is to speak as or in unique relationship to the author. It's to speak with a certain firsthand knowledge of a truth, making it authentic. Our text today in Mark, it begins in verse 21. As Lorene read, they went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. I was, what does that mean that Jesus teaches with authority? And where does this authority come from? So real quick, three, three types of authority. I'm sure there's more, but three types. Some people have authority that's given to them. Right? It's given from someone else. Example would be uh, any sort of uniformed professional, police officer, 
Um, most clergy have it because it's been given by someone. Kings or rulers who need rings or crowns. Usually there's an identifier physically to authority that's been given to you. And usually people have agreed to this. Sometimes the community agrees. We, we give authority to this person or someone above them gives it down. This is also a diploma, a certificate, right? It confers authority. Now, personally, I would give authority and trust to the lawyer with degrees from Yale and Columbia more than one who studied online at University of Phoenix. No offense if there's any graduates from University of Phoenix watching, but I'd give more authority, personal trust to the person who has had that authority given to them by reputable sources. Now, others have authority because of who they know. It's authority by relation or relationship. In this case, imagine there's two biographies written. You can say they're about George Washington or Beyonce or whoever you might read a biography about. One is written by someone who personally knew them. They were a contemporary. They had actual experiences with this person. And the other is written, let's say, 10, 20, 30 decades after the person has passed away. All of their writing is going to be from secondhand sources and the like. Well, whose biography are you going to value more as the authority on that person? Most likely the one who actually knew them. So based on their relationship, their biography is going to be more authoritative. So that's authority that's given. That's authority that's by relation. And others still have a sort of self-generated authority. Their life proves their words. Their experience and consistency gives them authority. We might truly trust a mechanic who has fixed thousands of cars. If they say our brakes needs to be fixed, we will get our brakes fixed. We will trust them as the authority on the matter because of their own life. It's not only because someone has given them authority, right? A certificate on their wall doesn't necessarily make them a trustworthy mechanic. It's also not only because of their relation to someone in authority. Just because their father was a good mechanic does not mean that they will be. But if you've read thousands of Yelp reviews that are all positive that this person has fixed my car you will likely trust them as an authority. It's been proven by experience. And this is the kind of authority, this third type, this self-generating authority that I want to talk about today. It's authority that finds power in authenticity. Now, I also want to point out that Jesus uniquely has uh, the authority of the other types as well. Right at his baptism, the father gives authority to Jesus by saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. So Jesus has the authority of the father because it's been given, right? It's conferred on him by the God of Israel. And also at his baptism, the spirit as a dove or like a dove comes and hovers over him. It's this, images, this image um, 
of hovering, of presence, of relationship. So Jesus has the authority and the power of the Spirit because he knows the Spirit firsthand. He is in Trinitarian relationship with the Father and the Spirit. So Jesus has all of this authority, but in this text specifically, I want to narrow in on the third, the self-generative authority, self-generating. So again, we're in the first chapter of Mark. Early on in Mark's gospel, he wants us to know that Jesus is teaching as one with authority, as one who has the power to live a life in harmony with his own teaching. He lives authentically. So when he speaks, it carries immense meaning and weight. He doesn't speak a sort of abstract truth that's disconnected from his very life. It's all bound up together. Notice in verses 23 and 24. So we'll continue on. Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, if you look at what the spirit says, that unclean, impure spirit, it's all actually true. The unclean spirit speaks the truth. It names Jesus correctly. It even identifies his particular humanity. The spirit says, Jesus of Nazareth. In other words, the human Christ who breaks into time and space, the material, fleshly, incarnated Jesus. And the Spirit identifies that this Jesus has come to destroy all unclean or demonic spirits, breaking the bonds of Satan. Also true. And then it goes on to name the full divinity of Jesus. The impure spirit says, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God, the Spirit says. And what's Jesus' response to this unclean, impure spirit? He tells the Spirit to shut up and be silent. It's the same Greek words that he uses to silence the waters and the winds later on in Mark chapter 4 when the disciples are on this boat in the midst of a storm. Jesus says these words to this spirit. Why? I mean, technically, this demonic spirit is speaking the truth. You'd think Jesus would take advantage of the free advertising. All publicity is good publicity, right? Jesus, let him keep speaking. He'll say some good things. Maybe he'll go on and and tell everybody about you. Then you don't got to keep walking around. But Jesus will not accept the hollow confessions of spirits that are not cleansed and transformed. So while they may be similar in content, this demon's words are the exact opposite of Jesus's. Why? They're both true. Because these words have no authority or power because they are inconsistent with the life of the one speaking them. Jesus is the truth. He doesn't just say the truth. He says he is the truth. The son of God. While this unclean spirit 
is what? A child of Satan, the father of lies, the instigator of inconsistency, the high king of hypocrisy. See, in the New Testament, the vocabulary of demonic activities against human beings, it's, it's rich and varied. We hear all this different stuff, but it all shows movement towards the ultimate destruction of people. Anytime you encounter demons, impure spirits, things like that in the Gospels, they dehumanize. They make people less than human. Demons troubled or annoyed people in Luke 6. They robbed a young boy of his speech in Mark 9. They rendered a man mute in Matthew 9 and Luke 11. They froze the back of an elderly woman in Luke 13. They seized the Gerasene demoniac in Luke 8 and a young boy in Luke 9 in order to destructively overcome him. Demons seek to make humanity less than human. In the scriptures, they cause muteness, blindness, self-inflicted wounds, screaming, convulsions, seizures, falling to the ground and rolling around, foaming at the mouth and grinding the teeth. People become like animals when the demons are involved. If we look at the stories of demons in the Gospels, we see that when someone is possessed, what happens is certain dehumanizing aspects occur. Demonic activity always seeks to make us less human. It seeks to chip away at that imago Dei, that image of God inherent in us. And to the contrary, the life and teachings of Jesus actually make us more human. I've talked to people before who, you know, they're like, Jesus is compelling but I don't know if I want to follow him and become a Christian because I'm afraid that life will become sort of less. There's all these restrictions and rules that will really just take away the joys, the vividness of life. It's almost as if they think to be more spiritual means to be less human. As if there's sort of like a contingency. You're either human or spiritual. And if you become more spiritual, more like Jesus, you're less and less human. Well, that's actually entirely untrue. That's the opposite of the way it works. Jesus is presented to us, as I've said before, as the new Adam, as the new human, as the full and complete example of what it looks like to live a full, flourishing life. The life and teachings of Jesus make us more whole, more complete, so that the way of Jesus is actually the way, he says, of abundant life, of life to the full. Part of this has to do with spirituality, with relationship to God. Because humanity originally created in the garden was meant to dwell with God. We see this in fullness in the person of Jesus, who is always with the Father, always consenting to the will of God. And so because of this, humanity is created to be with God, right? We see this in Jesus. And to be unclean is to be unable to enter the presence of God. 
in Jewish life and imagination. It's to be unable to enter God's presence. So when Mark talks about an unclean spirit, he's talking about something that seeks to separate us from the presence of God, which ultimately makes us less like Jesus and less human. The unclean spirit proclaims truth, but actually brings death. This is the antithesis to the way and words of Jesus, which bring life and life to the full. To bring this point home, I'd love to look at the Sermon on the Mount, particularly the ending of this sermon in the Gospel of Matthew. And the the Sermon on the Mount is found in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And it's considered by most some of Jesus' most important teachings. And what it does in the sermon is it shows a new way of being human. The New Testament scholar Jonathan Pennington says, As prophet and sage, Jesus is offering and inviting his hearers into a way of being in the world that will result in their true and full flourishing now and in the age to come. Jesus presents not a list of heroes of the faith, nor a list of moral behaviors that describe the truly pious, but rather a redefinition of who the people of God are. They are ones whose lives look like this beatitudinal way of being and like Jesus himself. This beatitudinal way of being. He's referencing the beatitudes in the the first part of Matthew 5. With that understanding of the Sermon on the Mount as a way to be human, as a way to flourish, let's read the last few sections of that sermon. Matthew 7 15 through 17, and then we'll pick up again in verse 24. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. In verse 24, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. So in our text, in Mark, 
We have people amazed that Jesus is teaching in the synagogue because he teaches with authority. When he casts out the unclean spirits, they're amazed because he teaches with authority. And then in Matthew, on the mountain, with listeners amazed at his teaching with authority. In the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about false prophets. And he says you'll recognize them by their fruit. So not by their words alone, but by what their life actually bears. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit and vice versa. They are false prophets because their lives do not authentically match their words. So in discerning the doctrine of a false prophet, he doesn't say to actually pay close attention to the doctrine. Listen really closely to what they say and dissect it as true or untrue. He says, look at what's born out of that truth either in their life or the lives of their hearers. And then you'll begin to see if this is true or untrue, if it's consistent or inconsistent, if it has authority or not. They are false prophets because their lives do not authentically match their words. In our reading in Deuteronomy, Uh, from this morning in the Old Testament lesson, it it continues on a verse or two later. And it says, you will know them. Because basically the text says, okay, listen to a prophet who speaks my words. If they don't, uh, kill them. Put them to death. That's insane, right? And then it says, how do you know if they're true or false? Well, did what they say come true? That's how you judge this prophet. Again, not so much are their words consistent with their own words. But are their words consistent with the life that comes? Are their words consistent with what they've said is true of the world, is true of themselves? And Jesus takes on this same theme in his end of the Sermon on the Mount. It's very important. And then Jesus goes on to say that anyone who hears this Sermon on the Mount and puts it into practice will be like a wise person on steady and sure foundation. I think the word practice here is really important because it anticipates imperfection and also growth. I mean, think of practicing for a piano recital. If your teacher says you'd be wise to practice, it doesn't mean your teacher will be listening as you practice and every time you get something wrong, say, well, now you can't do the recital. They're expecting you to get something wrong in practice. It's practice. But it does mean that they expect you to put your fingers on the keys. If your teacher says to practice and you just sit there thinking about practice because you're afraid to get it wrong, your teacher's going to be pretty upset. They're going to say, you didn't listen. I said practice. There's something in the practicing that creates wisdom, Jesus is saying. There's something in the doing of the Sermon on the Mount. This is the wise response to it, Jesus says. The scholar R.T. France, he says, basically, the Sermon on the Mount is not meant to be sort of uh, 
like, oh, this is amazing. It's not meant to be like looked at and thought, what great teaching. It's meant to be obeyed, is what he says. This is why at the end of the sermon, Jesus' listeners respond with awe at his authority, with his divine authenticity, because his teaching and his life line up and illustrate one another. Jesus practices what he preaches, and he does so flawlessly. The teachings in the Sermon on the Mount are not easy to follow at all. Just thank God he just says to practice them, not be perfect in doing them. But they ought to bring us to worship because we recognize, oh, Jesus actually did this. The content and character of Jesus' life matches up with the Beatitudes. It matches up when he says to turn the other cheek or go the extra mile. We see him doing that as he walks towards the cross. Now, the teachers of the law that are referenced in Mark 1.22 and Matthew 7.29, they aren't actually without any authority. It's not that people thought, oh, these teachers of the law, they don't, their teachings are pointless. It's not that the rabbis and the Jewish teachers of the Torah don't have any authority or that their lives are completely devoid of any kind of faithful living. The teachers of the Torah did have authority in the community, but their teaching was only considered authoritative if they showed their sources. You either are directly quoting scripture or you're directly quoting another rabbi or at least referencing them. That's how your work is authoritative. Their authority rested on regularly being able to quote these people for support. So when they say Jesus teaches not with that kind of authority, they're saying he teaches with a new kind of authority. His teachings on life are authoritative because he is the author of life. He can tell us what it truly looks like to flourish as a human because he himself flourished as a human. And even though he's well-versed in the scriptures and he does reference them, He doesn't need to quote any other sources because he himself is the source. Jesus silences the unclean spirits and preaches against false prophets because their words are inauthentic. They lack any real authority. At the end of the day, Jesus' authority is actually good news. True authority isn't actually about control. And I'm sure there's some of us who need to hear that this morning. That true authority isn't actually about control. In the synagogue, when they were amazed at this new authority... It wasn't because Jesus had the authority to control them. They were excited because he could silence all demonic power. David Garland said, Jesus comes with the authority of God to dismantle the tyranny of Satan. 
The authority of Jesus isn't about our control. It's about our freedom. It isn't about our fear, how we may react to other authorities in our lives, at least me. But it's about our trust. Church, the authority of Jesus makes him trustworthy. To go back to my earlier examples of a lawyer with degrees or a biographer with firsthand knowledge of the subject or a mechanic with years of experience. The point of all this authority is that we trust them to do what they say they will. And this trust, it creates a kind of, a kind of ease in their presence when you actually trust someone. Do you know what I'm getting at? That feeling when you actually trust someone as an authority on something? Think about the experience of going to a new mechanic. I've moved around a lot the last few years, so every time I'm in a new town, it means I've got to find a new mechanic. So you take your car in, you're sitting there in the waiting room, and if you're anything like me, you can sense the tension sort of building up in your body. What are they going to find in my car? Are they going to be honest? What are they going to charge? What if they can't fix it? What's taking so long? So you're sitting there, tensed. They finally come to you with the, the bill and the receipt for the work done. And you see it and you think, I don't believe you. Like, I don't believe that this is true. I just got the brakes repaired or the rotors redone, and yet they're charging you for it. That feeling, that's that feeling of doubting the authority over you. It's terrible. You cannot relate to God that way, or your life will be miserable. That whole experience is filled with anxiety and doubt and frustration and regret even. I know a mechanic is a poor example for God, but stay with me. Consider going to the same mechanic for 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Every time they clearly communicate what's going on. They get the work done professionally, yet also time and cost efficiently. What's the feeling like when you're sitting in the waiting room there? It's probably with ease. It's probably with relaxed shoulders. It's probably even with gratitude that your car will be running once again in due time. They are the authority on the automobile. They can be trusted. The authority of Jesus makes him trustworthy. It means we can live our lives actually surrendered to him. We can let go of the tight grip of control. He won't ask anything of us that he himself has not already experienced. And his authoritative teaching is meant to lead us to a flourishing life. This means when you're in prayer, right? When you are in the presence of Jesus, you can let your guard down. You can trust that he will be faithful with you. You don't have to wonder what Jesus' intentions are for your life. Are they good? Are they for ill? 
You don't have to wonder if he can relate to what you're going through. He can and does. Trusting Jesus and his authority is actually the most freeing thing we can do. So the invitation this week is to trust in the good authority of our God. I want to end praying Colossians 2 verses 6 to 10 over us. This is basically how Paul gives my sermon, but much better and much more concise. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. Amen.